0: Well, good morning, Covenant. It's great to be with you this morning, and it's a real uh, gift for us to have the chance to open up God's Word together. I'm glad you made it through the snow. hope you had a great Christmas with family and friends. If you have your Bible, we're going to be reading in Galatians 4 today, so you can turn there with me or you can follow along in your order of worship. Galatians 4, verses 3 through 7. The Apostle Paul says this, starting in verse 3. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. This is God's word, and it's given to us for our good. Well, I wonder if you have ever had an experience where you needed to assemble something using instructions that only had pictures. Maybe this was even a Christmas gift, and maybe it was your daughter's dollhouse or a new piece of furniture, and and maybe this came naturally to you because you're visually oriented, but maybe you're like me, and this experience is a struggle of struggles. Before our daughter was born, I spent the better part of two hours trying to put together this Ikea crib. Using the instructions, I was misassembling and then reassembling, and and I thought I was done, but then then my wife came in, took one look at it, and said, that's not right. And 15 minutes later, she had reassembled it correctly with no issues. She is visually oriented. Um, My problem was that I couldn't discern what it was saying from the pictures alone. The pictures were helpful in giving an overall impression of the task, but without the steps clearly spelled out in words, I was prone to misinterpreting or misunderstanding or or just completely missing the significant information that the pictures were trying to communicate. And I think a similar thing can happen when we think about the story of Jesus' birth. This is the story that we love to tell and we love to sing songs about all throughout the Christmas season, but sometimes... We can become numb because of the familiarity of it all, or we can sentimentalize it to the point that it's basically a fairy tale. The events, the people, the details, they become like these images that are hard to decipher. Theoretically, they seem important, but without a clear articulation of the ultimate significance that God sent his son into the world, we can find ourselves misinterpreting, misunderstanding, or just completely missing out on the life-altering reality that this story communicates to us. But in God's wisdom and in his grace, we find in our passage today just this kind of powerful explanation that many of us need. In just a few sentences, Paul gives us this two-pronged answer to this question that can arise in our hearts. Why does it really matter that in the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son into the world? What kind of difference could this make in my life? How might this change something or or even everything about my life? And what we'll see in this passage is that God sent his son into the world to redeem us from slavery and to adopt us into his family. Let's pray and dedicate our time to God. Father, we thank you that you have given us the opportunity to be together. We thank you for your word which speaks truth to us. I pray now that your spirit would go before us and give us understanding, that you would teach us, encourage us, rebuke us, whatever it is that we need to hear from you, Lord, I pray that you would, you would communicate that to us by your spirit. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, as we look at our passage this morning, it's, it's helpful to know a little bit about what's going on in this letter that Paul sent to the Galatian church. This church was made up of Gentiles that had recently come to faith in Christ after Paul had preached the gospel to them. He planted a church there, yet not long after he left, false teachers came. And they threatened the gospel that he had communicated to them. We sometimes call these people the agitators or the Judaizers. And and they preached a false gospel that told these Gentile believers that faith in Christ is not enough to be justified and saved. They said that they also needed to observe the Mosaic Law with practices like circumcision. And when Paul heard how this church was being misled, he wrote this scathing letter full of pastoral rebuke, full of theological explanation, and ultimately full of an unwavering commitment to the gospel of Jesus Christ that comes not by works of the law, but only through faith in Jesus And it's on the heels of a robust discussion of the purpose of the Mosaic Law that we find our passage this morning in chapter 4. And so in verse 4, Paul tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. And the first answer that we see here is that Paul is saying God sent his Son to redeem us from slavery. The act of redeeming is an act of deliverance, of rescue, of setting free a person or people who by definition are not free. And so the glorious act of redemption starts with the dark recognition of bondage and slavery. And that's exactly how Paul speaks in verse 3. He writes that in the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. And he's recalling a time prior to the coming of Christ when they were trapped by what he calls the elementary principles of the world. This is not a phrase we use every day. It's, it's kind of a puzzling phrase because it was used in a variety of ways in the ancient world. Often it was used as a way of referring to the four elements that the ancient people believed made up the universe, air, water, earth, and fire. But it was also used to describe things like letters, which served as the building blocks for words. It's also used in some medical contexts. And so it's a little hard to pin down and tell if Paul has one specific context in mind or a number of them. But at the foundation, it seems clear to us that this is a way of describing the fundamental components of life before and outside of faith in Jesus. And at the foundation, humans have been drawn away from the glory and the worship of God. And they've been enslaved into ever-deepening forms of sin and idolatry. For Gentiles, this was classic pagan idol worship, the worship of created things rather than the creator. But for the Jewish people, their enslavement was a bit more subtle, but it was no less stifling. Because as Paul tells us in chapter 3, their captivity was to the law. Over the course of time, the people had taken the law and they had made it into a kind of idol. The law was given to them as a gift to instruct them how to live in faithful obedience to God, and it promised blessings for obedience. Yet, in the previous chapter, Paul says that it also held out curses for disobedience. He writes in Galatians 3.10 that all who rely on works of the law are under a curse, for it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. And you and I know, we know because of human brokenness that no one obeys the law completely. And so the law becomes a kind of prison. The law can convict and it can instruct, but it cannot justify a sinful person. That righteousness that we so desperately need to stand before a holy God can only come by faith in Christ, not by works of the law. But the problem among the Galatians was that these agitators were teaching that in order to be justified, they needed both faith in Jesus and observance of the law. Rather than faith alone, they had added works of the law to the equation. But in doing this, their faith shifted from resting solely on Christ, and instead they also began to trust in their own capacity to reach a standard of righteousness. It became faith in Jesus plus works of the law. But this is self-righteous legalism not the gospel. And it's the kind of thing from which you and I also need redeemed. The Galatians aren't the only ones who undermine the redeeming work of Christ by inserting their own attempts at self-justification. What are you tempted to rest in besides the grace of Jesus? When you go before God in prayer, do you, do you stand proud like the Pharisee in the temple in Jesus' parable? Where you trust that your religious piety or, or your faithful service or your ideological or moral purity makes you righteous? When we try to bear the weight of justifying ourselves, this becomes a yoke of slavery, is what Paul says. And deep down, we know this. It's suffocating and anxiety inducing to, to always need to try to be enough but ultimately it's it's fruitless because this standard requires more from us than we could ever offer. But Paul tells us that when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law. It's this beautiful announcement of a redeemer, a rescuer, and not just any rescuer, one who was born of woman and yet is the Son of God one who was born under the law and subjected himself to the curse of the law even though he didn't break it or deserve its curse. Jesus, the God-man, is our Redeemer. And it's striking that in this moment, Paul points not to Jesus' death and resurrection, which he often does, even elsewhere in Galatians. Instead, he underscores the divine sending and the human birth of Jesus. God has sent his Son, who is truly God, In the person of Jesus. That Jesus was born of a woman. And so he shares our nature. And so he can truly represent all of humanity before God. And and, and stand blameless before him. He was born under the law so that he might fulfill what Israel could not in its own strength. And it's in all these dimensions that we see the wisdom and power and love of God who so desires that we would receive the true freedom of redemption and be saved from our bondage to sin. Even in our rebellion, he has withheld nothing to accomplish our redemption. And because Jesus was born under the law and fulfilled its requirements, we can be declared righteous before God. We could stand blameless before him because of Jesus. Free from the curse of sin and, and the captivity of the law. And let me tell you, if, if that was the whole story, we would be blessed beyond measure. We would have so much to be grateful for, but, but that's only half of what Paul tells us. It's only half the answer that he gives. God's love is so vast and his grace is so expansive that he cares not merely that we are freed from slavery, but also that we be adopted into his family. And so Paul writes that God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The practice of adoption in ancient times overlaps in many ways with our own today. Both describe the act of parents welcoming a child into their family that was not naturally born to them. But there are a few key differences. Today, adoption is mainly a way of caring for children whose biological family cannot. And this is a beautiful thing that I know even some of you have done. But in Paul's day, in the Roman Empire, adoption was practiced primarily as a way of passing on an inheritance to someone who was not a natural born son. And This was to ensure that a family's estate was protected if they didn't have a son to pass it on to. In a number of cases, this happened even with the the Roman emperor who didn't have a proper heir. And so Paul uses this existing concept, but he infuses it with a theological meaning. And he makes it deeper and richer. And you might notice that Paul uses very specifically the language of adoption as sons. Even though he's writing to a congregation of both men and women. And it's important to note that that he is not looking to disregard our individual maleness or femaleness. Our embodied humanity as men and women is a gift from God. And elsewhere in Scripture, we are called children of God. But here, here Paul is doing something else. He is pointing us to see a, a reality that's deeper than our own individuality. He's saying that Christ has so joined himself to us and made us one with him that our status as heirs before the Father is his own status, and he shares it with us. We are all sons of God because we have been made one with the Son of God. But unlike the focus of the Roman practice of adoption, God is careful to show that this is not merely a legal reality focused on an estate It's also a relational reality. And he does this, as he says in verse 6, by sending the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying out, Abba, Father. In his act of adoption, God holds nothing back, and instead we see that redemption and adoption is an act of the triune God. We have a triune God who's kept no part of himself from us. We have a Father who sent his only begotten Son to purchase redemption for us with his very life. We have a spirit who calls out and cries out to God, not as judge, but as a father. And he calls us to do the same. We go to him with confidence that he hears us because we are truly his child. The Westminster Confession of Faith puts it this way about those whom God has adopted. It says that they enjoy the liberties and privileges of the children of God. They have his name put upon them. They receive the spirit of adoption They have access to the throne of grace with boldness. They are enabled to cry, Abba, Father. They are pitied, protected, provided for, and chastened by him as by a father, yet never cast off, but sealed to the day of redemption and inherit the promises as heirs of everlasting salvation. God has drawn us into his family, sent us his spirit so that we might call out to him as Abba Father, the same name that Jesus cried out to in Gethsemane. He invites us to him and he delights to answer us. And and if you're a parent, you know something about this, right? You know the joy of offering consolation to your child when they're upset or hurting or in need. But even at their best, human parents have human weaknesses And limitations. But God is no human father. And he never grows weary or annoyed or aloof or too busy to hear our cries. And so we must go to him. Bring your hopes, your joys, your anxieties, your heartache to him. Rest in his love and in his power, not in your own or in other lesser things. The God that Jesus calls father is our father too because God the Father sent his son and his spirit to achieve and confirm this beautiful reality to us. You know, when I think about this passage and all that it communicates to us about God sending his son to redeem us from slavery and adopt us into his family, it reminds me of those stories that you hear sometimes about a person or a family stumbling upon a stray dog caught in some kind of terrible circumstance. And then that person sets the dog free. But not only that, they take that dog and they bring it into their home and they, they welcome it as a beloved pet. And these are sweet stories that show us something about what God has done for us in Jesus. But, but there's some differences. The difference is that you and I were not cute Helpless puppies in need of a home. We were rebels. We chose our captivity. And, and maybe we even fought against the one who was trying to free us. And God has not welcomed us into his family as a pet, but as heirs. as beloved children who stand to inherit everything that his only begotten son rightfully deserves. This father's inheritance is it's not a modest sum. Because it's a kingdom of peace and love and righteousness and justice and joy forevermore. And lest you and I be tempted to doubt our place in this family, this father is constantly working to assure us of our place through his spirit that cries out, Abba, Father. So no matter what pain, what difficulty is true of our lives now, and I know that many of you are dealing with so much. No matter what is true now, this future hope and this present reality are even truer. Why? Because when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. So you and I, we are no longer slaves but sons, and if sons, then heirs through God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you that you've held nothing back to save us, to redeem us, to adopt us into your family. We praise you for your grace, for your love, and we ask that by your Spirit you would confirm to us this grace that you've shown us in Jesus. Help us to call on you as Father, knowing that you hear us. And that you delight in caring for our every need. Would we do that, Lord, by your spirit. Because of your son, Jesus. And it's his name that we pray. Amen.